Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now I want to bring in Mike Jackson. He's the CEO of AutoNation and one of the most respected figures in the industry um, dealing a lot of cars, even before the pandemic. Mike, tell us about the your experience during the pandemic and, and what it's like now as we as we poke our heads out. Well, I think um, the pandemic was a scarring event for Americans, just horrific, unimaginable. But from a business point of view, it had two significant impacts, one on the housing industry and the second on automotive. Housing, they want more space, and they want the space to be nicer. And then when they leave their house, they want to control the environment that they're in. They want their personal vehicle, and they want to control who's in it, when, and where it goes. So this independence of American spirit uh, was brought out by this uh, pandemic. So that has dramatically increased demand for individual automobiles, and uh, that led to a fourth record quarter for AutoNation with an increase in our revenue of 27% year-over-year, 27% increase uh, in gross profit. We had cost measures that we also put in place, hence our earnings per share tripled compared to a year ago. So the environment is good. No question, low interest rates is very supportive of housing and automotive. But within that automotive uh, uh, segment, AutoNation, with its brand, its great experience with one price on pre-owned, the digital platform, coast to coast, uh, performed extraordinarily well. Hey, Mike, talk to us about the chip shortage. We've been hearing so much about this, and you've been in the news making some um, you know, some clear statements about that. Give us a sense of what that really means for your business and how long the chip shortage you think is going to affect uh, the auto industry in this country. Well, we've had more demand than supply across the board uh, since uh, April, May of a year ago when you hit this inflection point where the American consumer woke up and said, listen, I want, I want personal transportation. Inventories were, of course, for new, very low then, because the plants were closed for eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, depending on the manufacturer. Uh, and you had this extraordinarily high demand. Now, the chip shortage means they can't meet the demand. Um, shipments are still pretty good, but um, and it's much better than a year ago. There's no comparison to the shutdown period. This chip shortage is more a disruption of a very complex global manufacturing system. So the headline remains, we have more demand than supply. The way we are managing it as a company is that we've adjusted margins on the new vehicle side, and we're selling uh, incoming vehicles, pre-selling incoming vehicles at at a much higher rate than normal. So everything comes in and goes out. And on the volume side, uh, we've aggressively purchased pre-owned Uh, We put very good values on the trade-ins for our customers, so that's a win for them. And hence, we're able to increase our pre-owned business by 28% year over year. I talked to Ola Kalenius, the CEO of Daimler, a couple of days ago, and he told me 
in terms of the chip shortage for them, they're prioritizing the higher margin vehicles. So yeah. the new EQS, for example, they're going to prioritize that in the S class, of course. I see that you had last year a uh, bigger growth in your premium luxury segment than you did in domestics and, and imports. Is that part of that um, equation? Uh, premium luxury uh, is uh, in the high 30s as a percent of our business. Uh, and uh, we're the largest uh, retailer of Mercedes in the U.S. Ola is a good friend of mine. Known him a long time. He's an outstanding CEO. Ola is not the only one who's come to that conclusion. And we clearly say, and here's an epiphany, that the manufacturers are saying, let's put the chips in the highest demand vehicles, which, by the way, are also the highest uh, margin vehicles for them. I, I think that uh, the industry didn't always do that in past decades. And the consumer, just like in a home, is looking for a bigger vehicle with more content and hence more chips in that particular vehicle. And the manufacturers are prioritizing that. And let's not produce vehicles for which there's very little interest or demand. I mean, let's give the customer what they want. Wow, okay. That's yep. a stroke of genius. I like it. And it's <laughs> been very um I think it's I think it may have changed the industry uh long term that there is much rather than being so production driven all the time and overproducing, let's really focus on what consumers want and have a good balance between demand and supply just want to ask you a quick question speaking of industry changes we only got 30 seconds here but i've heard that amazon may come into the market do you think that they're a potential threat amazon is a great company and they've been coming into automotive for i think 30 years i've been hearing that so listen <laughs> it's a big complex business and uh i like our position with our brand our experience and our digital platform we'll be also, fine auto nation I will do well also, I have a lot of car dealer friends, and they wanted me to ask if you have any stories for sale. <laughs> Do you have anything out there that you're willing to give up? But I'm guessing the answer right no, now I we love our stores. is no. I knew it would be. <laughs> Mike Jackson, the CEO of AutoNation, the stock has soared, um, and it's been All really incredible All-time high today, intraday. Absolutely. This is Bloomberg. We've got an old-fashioned bidding war in the railroad business, Canadian National launching a $30 billion bid for Kansas City Southern. That comes on top of Canadian Pacific's offer from just last week of about $25 billion. Let's break it down. We do that with Tony Hatch. Tony's a principal at ABH Consulting. Tony is one of the leading and longest-serving rail analysts on the street. He knows all of these companies intimately well. Tony, thanks for joining us here. Again, the two Canadian rails looking at Kansas City Southern, what's the rationale behind their interest? Well, um, the rationale really is that there's ter terrific uh, growth potential. These both of the offers were really contingent upon, uh, or, or the success was contingent upon synergies. Very different from most historic mergers in the rail industry, which have been about removing duplicate efforts or economies. So I think they both see Mexico being a tremendous growth market. Whether or not we get a big increase in nearshoring and other things, it's been the fastest growing market in North American freight uh, for some time, and will continue to be. And I think the uh, both of the networks fit with the, the Kansas City Southern pretty well. Tony, how much green space is in this industry? I mean, do you just, if you want more railroads, 
do you have to buy other railroads, or are they going to be building out more network? Well, um, basically, this is sort of like the whole thing about real estate. You, you know, they don't make any more of it. Uh, building a railroad is prohibitively expensive. Uh, finding a line of center, you have to buy them. If you want access, direct access, owned access to markets, you need to purchase it uh, or cut some other kind of deal. You can't simply build into it. Uh, you know, the cost would be astronomical. All right, Tony. So behind this deal, I think, you know, even someone like me who hasn't looked at a you know a rail stock in 30 years, I look at the map here, and I see you know the Canadian routes, and then I see them connecting down into Kansas City, and then going all the way to Mexico, and it just seems like this is just a great play on just North America and trade kicking back in, and maybe getting some better trade agreements. Um, is that kind of what these guys are thinking? That's absolutely what they're thinking. I mean, this, you know, I hate to say it's a NAFTA or USMCA play because, you know, that's been going on for a while. But this truly links the continents, uh, links all three players in the continent, uh, in the three countries. Uh, in addition, it's a big north-south play in what has, you know, heretofore been really an east-west world. If you look at the big four U.S. railroads, they really work in an east-west phenomenon. So this is a way of attaining a different type of growth than we had been seeing. I mean, Kansas City Southern uh, had been the fastest-growing railroad for the last many years. Uh, the Canadians had been one and two uh, and three, all three of those. So you're really talking about the, the railroads here involved in this little uh, fracas are all the ones that are most focused at this point on growth. And the markets, as you talked about in the trade situation, uh, really is supportive of that. Even if it's great, a great commercial play, there's a point when the price could just be too high, right? I mean, we all agree that getting the first NFT on Beeple art <laughs> would be an incredible opportunity, but for $69 million, that's too much. So at what point does, um, does this asset get too expensive? You know, of course, everything you know, everything has a value. I don't think we're anything near that. It doesn't mean that we'll see another bid. This one surprised me this morning, uh, but you know, I think the idea that they're saying that they could, be, you know, that the synergies this will be accreted pretty quickly makes a lot of sense, and we'll get more information uh, as this process goes along. But we haven't reached the point of saturation here. This will make money for the buyer at both of those prices, even the higher one. Um, and I think potentially it an even higher one, but I don't see any, any of the other carriers getting involved at this point. But I think that you're right. You know, there is a point in which you pay too much for the growth. We haven't hit, hit that level yet. Tony, Tony uh, I got, wait, I got a quick follow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what was Paul like as a young employee? <laughs> It is very good to hear his voice. He was, uh, God, I hate to say this publicly, but he was pretty good. Was, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't I, expect I, anything I less. I regret saying that, but, uh, but he was, and he does know this stuff better than he's letting on here. Um, uh, this will be an interesting story. The, the question to me is the regulatory aspect. You haven't asked about it. I'm happy to talk about it. I, I think it could pass muster, but it's getting a little more complicated than it was just late last night when I went to bed. Fascinating. So, Tony, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Love getting your perspective here. We'll, we'll chat with you going forward. But again, a big, big deal uh, in the railroad business in this country is both Canadian railroads taking a big, big liking to Kansas City Southern. Tony Hatch, principal at ABH Consulting. That's his consulting firm. He talks to all the big railroads, talks to institutional investors. He's got his uh, finger on the pulse of that industry. And he was a very good guy to learn the industry from. Uh, so I can say that much. And I still know... Revenue ton miles, Matt. That's the key metric for your earnings models. How much do you make moving a ton of freight? Well, we're all buying more and more stuff online. It seems like there are boxes in front of every door. 
across America on a daily basis. But what about the jewelry business? Has that gone online? Has that gone digital? Let's check in with Tom Nolan. He's a newly appointed CEO of jewelry firm Kendra Scott. Tom, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to get your thoughts. Just starting out, uh, how has your business, the jewelry business, been impacted by the pandemic? Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Good morning. Um, it, you know, 2020, the year of COVID and even leading into 2021 has really been, it's been a fantastic year for us from a business perspective, a, a challenging one for our society, obviously. But um, we really weathered the storm remarkably well. I would say we were for sure an outlier and I'm really proud of the team and what a great job they did doing it. So what have you been doing uh, to sell more stuff online? I mean, I imagine, you know, sometimes I'll go around and look at watch. I'm not really a jewelry guy, but I'll look at watch websites and they have kind of developed into more interesting places, I guess, to spend time. But otherwise, you know, I just need to see a picture and know if I want it. Yeah, I, you know, I think our, our business has always been really experiential. I mean, it's from when Kendra started the company 20 years ago. It's been a, been a really experiential business, and we led that through brick and mortar and retail. And so it was, a, it was a challenge for us as more customers migrated to the web business to create that experience and, and deliver it to folks online. I think at the end of the day, what we've really always focused on, we know that the customer's our boss. I mean, she, she ultimately signs my paychecks and all of our company's paychecks and and it's important that we're meeting her and him wherever they are. And I think what we saw was that everybody migrated to online when brick and mortar stores were closed. We managed to have a successful retail year last year. We're still having a successful retail year this year. And additionally, on top of it, there's huge incrementality on what happened in the web business. Um, and we just tried to, to pivot and move very quickly meet them where they where they wanted to buy and as everybody has seen in the markets and the macroeconomic indicators i mean there was a lot more discretionary income people weren't going on vacations they weren't taking trips the same way so i think folks like yourself were looking for things to do in a lot of ways and i think we're fortunate to to be on the receiving end of that and, and our brand just means a lot to a lot of people it's philanthropies at the core of it and the heart of it and we always try to do good it's it, it was a remarkable year and it taught us a lot and made us all better and stronger and faster so who do you compete with uh tom you know now as your as your business kind of you know becomes a little bit more digital you know first and foremost i think our we our largest competitors ourselves right i mean we just we're always competing against doing better than we did the day before or the year before but we're in the jewelry space and the accessory space brands like case Spade, brands like tiffany's i'm tom and james bobble bar pandora Oriana. I'd say brands like that uh, are the ones that we are competing against on a day-to-day basis. So what kind of spending do you expect from stimulus? Have you seen a big boost from the checks that went out, or do you think we're going to see, you know, post-pandemic, a huge spending splurge? Yeah, I, I think that we all saw it. I mean, if you're, if you're paying attention to networks and stations like y'all's, there, there was definitely an increase in, in stimulus spending, uh, and I think there was a lot of consumer brands around the receiving end of that. You know, it's the market is, as you know, is so so challenging. I mean, it's really more it's harder to figure out than it ever has been before. So I think for us, we think about controlling the things that we can control. If we, we know that if we make a great product, if we focus on the customer, if we deliver a great experience, we make our web experience as good or better than our retail experience we're going to continue to win. So, you know, I can't control 
what what happens in the market so we can control the things that we do. And I think when we when we do that well, we're going to continue to be successful and win. All right, Tom. So just give us a sense of how much of your business now is sold in stores, you know, the brick and mortar versus online. And, and how do you think that split might develop going forward? Yeah, so, so 2019 is probably the best indicator is a benchmark. Uh, in that year, almost 60% of our business was brick and mortar and retail. About 30% of it was was online. At the end of last year, it almost was 50-50 split. And I think at the end of this year, it's going to be pretty close to that as well as it relates to our direct consumer business. We have a meaningful wholesale business as well. But I am continue to still be you know, pretty bullish on the retail side of things. I think it has also created some nice inventory opportunities in the right kind of places. We always focused on outdoor centers, primary for us, and those, those certainly got through COVID better than others. Um, but I think that there's been such a pent-up demand. It's, I was with some folks from the Dallas Cowboys last night, and we're talking about this. There's been such a pent-up demand for people to get out and get back to normalcy. I think the web customer has changed forever, and it's always going to be a dominant force. But I also think that there's this demand of people wanting to get back out and return to normalcy. They're going to a sporting event, going shopping for themselves or somebody in their lives. And I, I, we've seen a little bit of that regionally, where states that open up a little bit sooner, like Texas and the southeast, and I anticipate seeing it a little bit more in the markets that we're, we're, we're a little bit more behind. So at the end of this year, we're going to be real close to 50-50 to answer your question, but I, I think retail still is going to be meaningful for us. And all the other retailers, hmm. I think, I think about it that way. And, and our business, too, I would just add one more thing, is that yeah. we're small footprints. Um, you know, in a, in a jewelry business, we don't have sizes. We don't need huge, big, monster right. storytelling right. retail spaces, so it helps us economically as well. Tom, great spending some time with you. Tom Nolan, CEO of Kendra Scott. Now I want to bring in Fiona Sincata, senior markets, a senior financial markets analyst at City Index. It's a retail division of StoneX. And Fiona, let me start by asking you about what we're seeing in U.S. stocks. Um, investors selling off, buying into bonds, even with you know these huge growth expectations and inflation fears what's happening in uh, the u.s equity market today yeah so what we're seeing as you said we we, we sort of had record highs struck last week with the dow and the um s p and then today is the second day of losses that we're seeing so we saw the sell-off yesterday we're seeing another sell-off today and there is that sort of there is this feeling of um risk off trade going on so we've got demand for sort of riskier uh, assets such as equities sort of really coming off um, investors are looking to pull the risk off the table when, whilst we've got sort of a more safe haven such as the US dollar and gold just ticking higher. I think the big concern here is with these rising COVID numbers again. So whilst the US is doing a very good job at reopening and getting vaccines out there, uh, the rest of the world are very much sort of India and, and Pakistan looking towards Asia. Um, the situation is much more concerning. And I think there is this fear about how that's going to impact on the global uh, growth and global economic recovery. So, uh, Fiona, we're just, you know, about 10, 15, 20% of the way through this first quarter earnings season. We've seen some names. You think about the banks last week put up some huge numbers, yet the stocks, uh, you know, are flat or down on the news. Does that suggest to you that this market's priced to, you know, close to perfection? 
it does, or even slightly, slightly overextended, it could be. I mean, we did have some really strong data at the end of last week as far as um, the U.S. data on retail sales and inflation was also higher. We've had some great um, numbers from the banks as well. So, so really, we were with those really strong numbers sitting at all-time highs. Um, and then we've had this sort of, sort of doubt come in. There are some concerns about where we might be going forward. I think there's also a lot of high, high expectations for this earnings season. And when expectations are so high, it does make it very difficult to please the market. So sort of, you know, to have a really good upside surprise is going to be much harder. Um, And so that does mean that sort of any slight um, concerns or any niggles that the market could have could see the stocks fall off quite quickly. How important are Netflix earnings to tech stocks? I think these are going to be really important. They're really going to be closely watched. I mean, if we think about it, the the first three months of this year, there were still lockdown um, uh, measures imposed. And so that does support the stay-at-home theme really boosted Netflix across the past year. But we've also got heating up competition. There's a big focus on content. So I think there's going to be a a really, really... um, close watch on how these are going to perform and also what that means for other tech stocks coming forward to next week when we've got the big um, U.S. tech stocks coming through. So these are really going to be sort of, you know, setting the trend and and, and letting investors sort of have an idea as to how that um, stay-at-home play is still going on or whether we are sort of on that cusp of the rotation out of that. So, uh, Fiona, kind of on the other side of, of the typical tech trade is you've got a, a, a cyclical trade and a trade into small cap stocks that's been working for uh, a lot of investors. I mean, really since September of last year, the, that cyclical rotation trade, if you will, has really been paying off. Is that something you expect to continue? It could do. It's something that I think we could still see much more room for the cyclicals to to gain. But it just depends now on what happens as far as the the COVID situation globally is taking place. So if we feel that if if the the sentiment concerning COVID is is really starting to to unnerve investors again, then we're just going to see a hold back on that rotation into cyclicals and back into growth. But if we can get under this, this sort of draw a line under this COVID um, concerns, which I think we're still some way off for the moment, um, then that would mean that we'd have a much stronger move back into cyclicals. So I think that the trade isn't over, but I just think the timing on it is not quite right at the moment. Just got a minute left. I want to get your thoughts on crypto. I mean, I know it doesn't seem to be influencing financial assets that much, but the run-up has been amazing and now the slump this week. Oh, completely. I mean, it has been one wild ride. And I mean, if that's something that crypto is really well known for, it's the sort of those wild swings, and it's definitely not disappointing as far as that's concerned. Um, it, it's been one that we've been watching extremely closely. We've had those those highs as we had the, uh, the IPO from Coinbase, and then it's sort of lump down afterwards has been absolutely spectacular. But that's what we expect from crypto, right? That's sort of those big moves is exactly what it's all about. So, um, just, yeah, definitely some type for those rides. Fiona, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Fiona uh, Sincata, Senior Financial Markets Analyst at City Index. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. 
You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.